1964 New York World's Fair, celebrating man's achievement on a shrinking globe in an expanding universe. I'm Paul Zoll, and these podcasts will be regular updates from the worlds of literature, popular culture, and the old religion, that's Bob Dylan's phrase, in relation to some of life's everyday problems, such as anger, loss, and bewilderment. Most of my podcasts will begin with a text, sometimes from a novel, I Love Possessed, sometimes from a movie, The Bride of Frankenstein, sometimes from a song, Telstar, for example, sometimes from the Bible, Perfect Love Casts Out Fear, sometimes from a TV show, Tonight's story will be a thriller. Each week, I hope to offer you something different, something entertaining, something even, well, blood-transfusing. order to lay the foundation or um, uh, give a overarching um, understanding of what I hope to be accomplishing in these podcasts, I need to talk a little bit about emotional abreaction and catharsis. Now, I've been uh, speaking publicly for uh, 35 years plus on uh, Christian themes and doing it always in the hopes of taking an ancient text, the uh, passage or some verses in the Old Testament or the New Testament, trying to understand them with reverence and uh, uh, a kind of presupposition that they have something important to say to us who are all stuck like that poor guy in The Fly, you know, that wonderful movie, The Fly, where the, the guy has the head of himself and the body of a fly, and he's struggling, and he can't get out of the spider's web, and look who's coming, and guess who he wants to have for dinner. You know, um, I see the human condition as a people struggling uh, against tremendous forces that are arrayed against them, experientially and circumstantially, and also inside themselves. Forces, as I said in my Telstar introduction, forces of uh, of uh, resentment and uh, anger and often intense bewilderment uh, before the way life goes. And so what I have been trying to do for uh, 35 years is to take an ancient and highly regarded uh, passage and try to uh, speak about it in such a way that it makes contact with the person, uh, with me. I'm the, with the first with the speaker, and then through the speaker as the kind of medium through those who are listening. It's like that amazing uh, scene at the end of the Hammer Horror 1968 movie that was called The Devil's Bride, in which uh, Mrs. Mary Lou Eaton, 
is the uh, uh, who's desperately trying to rescue her daughter from a coven of Satanists becomes a kind of medium for a powerful word that she doesn't even know really where it's coming from. Turns out it's an inscription on the uh, crucifix that her mother gave her in Russia years before. But Mrs. Eaton comes out with this mammoth and really a profound statement, which is sufficient to banish and exile the uh, uh, fixing power of uh, Makata and the Satanists. And she is kind of like a, a medium. She takes an ancient text, and in the text she speaks it almost uh, 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 like a... Uh, um, ventriloquist, and out it comes, and it has enormous power. And that's much of what I've, uh, in a very uh, big way, that is what a speaker in a religious context hopes that she or he is doing, being a kind of medium for a message that has some kind of sustainable and uh, perceived, received impact on actual living. Well, uh, in the last uh, few months, I have been also uh, thinking a great deal and been rather surprised by the fact that uh, in my own um, personal wounds and defeats and impasses and questions and reflections and reminiscences, I found myself uh, being addressed uncommonly uh, uh, with reality and um, uh, percipients by certain bodies of literature, in addition to the Bible, and not just the seventh chapter of Romans and the eighth, which I regard as as uh, as uh, the tongues of angels, uh, and not just Isaiah 40 and I, uh, Psalm 23, all of which I uh, believe have an enormous reservoir. They are casque d'or. They are full of precious gems for the human condition. But um, in recent times, I've found myself being addressed uh, by some works of literature which actually deal with these themes, but in a somewhat more oblique or less explicit manner. For some reason, which I will attempt to actually outline now, they have been um, connecting with my emotional and uh, also uh, reflexive, reflective self. And it is for that reason that I have um, uh, felt it, uh, it, it has really felt absolutely natural to prepare a series of eight talks to begin this series of podcasts on uh, works of literature and certain literary uh, figures whose work seems to have had a resonance or echo in my own. These are not different from what uh, from the sermons that I've preached often and still do, uh, nor that they're not lectures on the one hand, college lectures, although occasionally I'm allowing myself a little more time to let things uh, be expounded, a little bit more emotional time to give a text a little bit more uh, spin, so that is to let it spin out. I'm not going to, to pull in the fish so quickly that I uh, become impatient to get to the connection, the connection point with bitterness and anger and loss and mourning and tragedy and resistance and uh, grievance and injustice and all the things that we spend a tremendous amount of time thinking about engrossed in uh, but rather I'm giving I'm letting the the uh, the wire the fishing line go out a little longer in order to actually let certain pieces of literature in particular or movies what you have you speak to us in a in a more uh, relaxed or more uh, 
developed uh, a manner. Now, what this means is some of these talks will seem to be a little bit more, if you want to say that lecture is the left-hand side of the dial and sermon is the right-hand side of the dial, uh, what I would like to be able to say is that these uh, podcasts are sort of right in the middle. They will hopefully give you info that is interesting and may make you want to go home and read something or look something up or listen to something or see something. But on the other hand, they will hopefully really speak as a great work of literature and certainly a great text like the Bible uh, is intended to speak to you, speak to the real person. So I want to circle back every time I give a, a reference to Jack Kerouac or the Alcestiad of Thornton Wilder. Uh, but I'll want to uh, circle it back to where we really are as people. Uh, where, what's the human situation? How do I see that? Where am I? Where are you? Where's a person? Uh, and often there are enormous disturbances in the force. Now, that's a little bit of an intro to these uh, first eight talks, these eight podcasts. And uh, now I can tell you sort of uh, how this actually works. What's the theory here? And it's the same theory with uh, works of literature that are really universal and apt and continue to speak as it is with a great religious text, although I'm perfectly willing to put a great religious text in a separate category. Um, But for me at this stage, I'd like to sort of move gently into this whole territory by starting with some literary works, and then gradually as the comfort level between you and me, the listener and myself, as we develop a greater rapport, uh, gradually I may be able to address you more directly therapeutically, more directly as a speaker in a pulpit might do so. Um, But initially I want to sort of move move uh, uh, without undue haste uh, to that. That certainly suits me, and I hope you'll get something out of it, and we'll work together uh, to a a finish, to a flourish. Now, what um, is happening here is always when you hear something that speaks to you, uh, it's almost always an emotional reaction to a text or a work or a creation that uh, you believe has spoken to you. It is, it, is, it is said in words or in some visual expression, something that you feel about yourself and therefore it's valuable. It's like you have another voice outside yourself that is affirming and thereby illuminating your own experience. Now, in um, psychoanalysis, this is somewhat uh, brought into uh, uh, into um, the surface when I use the expression "ab reaction." Ab reaction, and in psychoanalysis, ab reaction takes place when you are you have something that's that's buried but that has tremendous emotional significance to you but for that very reason you're scared of it and it's buried in uh, a conversation or in a conversation privately with a work of art or a piece of music or something you see that um, inner feeling and uh, suppressed formation, uh, that suppressed emotion, is somehow able to come out and identify. And what happens, it's like a, like a, like a flash. It's like a, a f- fireworks. You, you, you have some deep-seated losses that have been suppressed for many years. You go to church and you hear the, um, you, the congregation sings, Oh God, our help in ages past. And for some reason, that connects with an experience that goes way back, often to your childhood or early life, and it unlocks by surprise something that's deeply buried, and you weep. 
People frequently have this experience of a uh, today, in my experience, usually they're middle-aged, sort of 35 to 65 and older, people who haven't been to, uh, say, to church for a very long time, but it reminds them in some way of their early childhood or their growing years or their mother and father, and they go to the, that situation, and their defenses are down because it's comfortable and warm, and you begin to revert back to Christmas Eve when you were four years old, and then a hymn with some very very beautiful universal text like abide with me fast falls the evening tide or oh god our help in ages past our hope for years to come our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home and you're filled with feeling and the feeling comes out and you weep you're surprised you're shocked you're a little embarrassed and you're shaking in the back row. You're, you're, you're heaving with sobs um, Christmas Eve or Easter morning or some Sunday that you wandered in. And uh, this is abreaction. It's when feelings that have been buried are somehow evoked and they come out outside yourself and they create a tremendous uh, quake, uh, an earthquake, uh, uh, a lightning bolt, uh, a thunder, thunderclap. And that is abreaction. And there's another term, a technical term, but it certainly helped me for many years. You you see something or you hear something that uh, is like you, or it, it it seems to it touches the you in terms of something outside yourself, like a play. Uh, and or a movie, and you're very moved. Now, the term that I sometimes use, and it's an old term, it's called symbolic substitution. In other words, you go to see a movie. In the old days, it would be something like Ordinary People with Mary Tyler Moore and uh, Judd Hirsch and Timothy Bottoms, or uh, in after that, it was um, um, that... Uh, terms of endearment and every three or four years but that was long ago every three or four years is a big weepy sometimes it's called a chick flick but sometimes it it's both a chick flick and a grand flick and a flick for everybody and we've all everybody who hears this has a movie that creates in whom they in which they see themselves the, 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 the character in the movie is a symbolic substitute for yourself. You identify with the action and what's happening to the person and what they're doing, and you're, you're overtaken when they have a loss because it reminds you of your losses, and you cry and you weep. And that's called um, symbolic substitution. So I've used two terms, abreaction, a reaction away from, that is away from the place inside yourself to outside through some uh, temper, some angry thing, or sometimes it's a tremendous... Uh, overcome by some tremendous ego emotion. Uh, characteristically, it's mourning and it's expressed in tears. And symbolic substitution, where you see yourself in something else, that becomes a symbolic substitute, and you're drawn to that story. Great expectations. David Copperfield, and I'll give many, many other examples. But symbolic substitution. Now, the ancient Greeks had a word for this, and I'm sure you've anticipated me. The ancient Greeks had a word for this called catharsis. And the catharsis was when you saw a tragic story enacted in front of you in the uh, on the proscenium, on the stage, and you identified with it, and through it your own emotions came out, and you had an emotional a coming out or abreaction that was called catharsis, a purifying of all this built up, backed up stuff that came out through the symbolic substitute of the characters on stage. 
abreaction, symbolic substitute, catharsis, and the, um, the, the kind of collateral good of having this kind of emotional experience, you always feel better. I don't know anyone who doesn't feel better when they are able to let suppressed feelings come out. Otherwise, these feelings bottle up and bottle up, and they end up in all sorts of splittings and actings out and uh, uh, behavior that is inexplicable to people who don't know that you're sitting on this stuff. Now, the great advantage, too, of this thing is you kind of detach. For a little moment, you've, you've, uh, you've come out. Your deepest, often um, negatively experienced feelings have been assimilated into your reality. The negativity has been assimilated, and it sort of comes out of you, and you're no longer kind of just spending all your effort preventing yourself dying because of the pressure of this material, kind of what Stephen King calls the boys in the basement, where you, you're spending so much energy expending so many foot pounds, keeping the door to the basement locked and bolted, and, and with all these forces underneath, or these, these boiling point forces are knocking, knocking, I keep on knocking, and I can't come in, you know. There you are, and you can't keep it under. And finally, you explode in some very uh, inhumane or colossal, uh, out-of-proportion blow-up. So if these feelings come out, a lot of the material is able to be expressed, you have catharsis, and you're actually sort of detached from yourself for five minutes. The feelings have come out instead of being totally about your inner conflict, and you have a kind of strange relief. The crying and the peace, the, the emotion, and then the calm, which often is a form of detachment. Now, um, let me give you some examples, uh, just uh, regular examples that I've been working with for some time, and some are very new, and they will set the stage for the kind of more exhaustively uh, explained, uh, uh, and uh, what's the word in Deutsch? is durchführende, ausführende, ausführliche. I will give you uh, these, uh, I will expatiate a little bit more in the eight talks on some works of literature where ab reaction can happen, and that's where I hope this can help you. I mean, I hope that we will be, you and I together, will be helped by this experience. This is not a, a it's not just a talk, uh, nor is it a uh, purely a, a personal I-thou confrontation with emotional material that is meant to have an instantaneous connection. I want to move gingerly but deliberately towards a connection of some great artistic and literary and religious texts with the real person, because I've found this has worked. I've found that the connection is there. Now let me uh, give you um, a couple of examples. One of, one of the most um, short little brief examples where the whole nature of the human predicament is kind of put into about a page uh, where we understand people and what's really going on with people. Uh, and we have a kind of gracious moment of emotion that comes out and is then lovingly brought into the mainstream and what I would want to call forgiveness is offered, occurs in a little story that the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy wrote in uh, 1885. And it's a little story called Where Love Is, God Is. And in this story, which is much longer than I'm going to say, this story Where Love Is, God Is, which is very easily to obtain, this particular story by Tolstoy, a shoemaker is in his basement named Martin, and he's watching 
the things that uh, happen outside his, uh, from the window, from his basement. He gets to see ground-level picture of what's going on in the street that is in front of him. And uh, he sees a an old uh, granny, an old woman, who's carrying a large basket of apples. And I'm going to um, read this short uh, description of what he sees. After a while, Martin saw an apple woman stop just in front of his window. She had a large basket, but there did not seem to be many apples left in it. She had evidently sold most of her stock. The sack evidently hurt her, and she wanted to shift it from one shoulder to the other, so she put it down on a footpath, and placing her basket on a post, began to shake down the chips in the sack. While she was doing this, a boy in a tattered cap ran up, snatched an apple out of the basket, and tried to slip away. But the old woman caught the boy by his sleeve. He began to struggle, trying to free himself, but the old woman held on with both hands, knocked his cap off his head and seized hold of his hair, the boy screamed and the old woman's skull scolded. Martin, the observer, dropped his awl, not waiting to stick it in its place, and rushed out of the door. The old woman was pulling the boy's hair and scolding him and threatening to take him to the police. The lad was struggling and protesting, saying, I did not take it. What are you beating me for? Let me go. Martin separated them. He took the boy by the hand and said, Let him go, Granny. Forgive him for Christ's sake. I'll pay him out so that he won't forget it for a year. I'll take the rascal to the police. Martin began entreating the old woman. Let him go, Granny. He won't do it again. Let him go for Christ's sake. The woman let go, and the boy wished to run away, but Martin stopped him. Ask the Granny's forgiveness, said Martin, and don't do it another time. I saw you take the apple. The boy began to cry and to beg pardon. That's right. Now here's an apple for you. Martin took an apple from the basket and gave it to the boy, saying, I will pay you, Granny. You will spoil them that way, the young rascals, said the old woman. He ought to be whipped so that he should remember it for a week. Oh, Granny, Granny, said Martin, that's our way, but it's not God's way. If he should be whipped for stealing an apple, what should be done to us for our sins? The old woman was silent. And then Martin tells her a parable from the New Testament about forgiveness, and the old woman listened to it all, and the boy, too, stood by and listened. God bids us forgive, said Martin, or else we shall not be forgiven. Forgive everyone, and a thoughtless youngster, most of all. The old woman wagged her head and sighed. It's true enough, said she, but they are getting terribly spoiled. Then we old ones must show them better ways, Martin replied. "'That's just what I say,' said the old woman. "'I've had seven of them myself, and only one daughter is left.' And the old woman began to tell how and where she was living with her daughter, and how many grandchildren she had. "'There now, I don't have much strength left, but I work hard for the sake of the grandchildren, and nice children they are, too. No one comes out to meet me but the children. Little Annie, now she won't leave me for anyone.' Now the old woman completely softened at the thought of Annie." "'Of course it was only his childishness. God help him,' said she, referring to the boy. "'As the old woman was about to hoist her sack on her back, "'the lad sprang forward to her, saying, "'Let me carry it, Granny. I'll carry it for you. I'm going that way.' "'The old woman nodded her head and put the sack on the boy's back, "'and they went down the street together, "'the old woman quite forgetting to ask Martin to pay for the apple. "'Martin stood and watched them, 
as they went along talking to each other. Now, this story, for my money, is an abreactive story because in it, a, a story is told that is universal. And when you actually read it, I challenge you to read it there, read it in front of you. And I'll be very surprised if you don't find yourself choked up. What happened? A boy stole an apple. The granny did absolutely right in throttling him and going to drag him to the police. Martin intervened and asked her to forgive him and told a story. She was very reluctant to do so, but he began to cry and beg pardon. Martin actually gave an apple to the boy and said he would pay for it. The grandmother was very skeptical. She feared, as everybody does, this is, this is politics here, if you want to go that route, you'll spoil them that way. He ought to be whipped. And Martin admits that's the way of the world. That's our way. But look, if you whip this thoughtless boy for stealing an apple, what would be done to us for our sins? And of course, that silences the woman. And then he tells the story very briefly of the Lord and the forgiveness of the debtor with a large debt. And the old woman says, again, they're getting spoiled. Martin says, well, we must show them better ways, you and I. And then the woman understands it's about herself because she has grandchildren. She has several grandchildren that uh, for whom she is giving all her all to keep them in food and making money for the family. And she begins to think of herself and her grandchildren in light of the little boy and herself. She begins to identify the little boy with Annie, her grandchild. And at that point, she's able to completely forgive because she identifies herself, her own family, with this situation of the, of the little boy. Of course, she says, it was only his childness. God help him. And then the boy is so touched by her reaction that in return, he offers to carry her sack and he means it. And then they go off and they begin to chat and they're going off having a grand old time. Well, you and I know that what the author is going to mean to say is that he'll, this little, this little rootless Oliver twist of a child is probably going to end up staying with her. This little, this little poor boy is probably going to end up uh, in her family. So you have a story which for us is abreactive. The uh, parable and Martin's forgiveness word to the granny is abreactive to the little boy. And that's a story which gives right completely what uh, Christians would call the heart of the good news of, of, of absolution and forgiveness, as opposed to paying the last farthing. Now, that's just a little example of how this works. And you, you see the whole thing told in a symbolic story that if you read it with feeling and hope and openness, that story in the context of the rest of the rather longer tale where love is, God is, that will uh, draw a choke. That'll draw a, a, a tear and you'll feel better for it. There are many other examples that I can talk about. There is a movie that the um, uh, Japanese director Akira Kurosawa uh, directed and uh, produced and wrote the script of with help uh, entitled Red Beard. He made it in 1968, and this is available on Criterion Classics, and it was on sale last uh, month for half its regular price, and there'll be another sale, I think, in November, so you can get it in November. But um, Redbeard tells the story of a very arrogant but failed young doctor who's really sort of uh, not having a very good day, and uh, he uh, is assigned to a kind of clinic run by a 
uh, very uh, strong and patriarchal, but as it turns out, absolutely marvelous, loving, generous, gracious, forgiving doctor who's known affectionately by his staff as Redbeard, played by Toshira Mifune. And uh, gradually in the long movie, and I would suggest you, well, no, see the whole thing. It's almost three hours, but it's, uh, some of it goes on a bit and doesn't really relate until the end when you sort of see it all come together. There are a number of vignettes in this story about a doctor who never gives up on impossible people. And uh, he, ha he, he uh, a poor young girl who's been abused horribly in a brothel is rescued by the doctor and his assistant, uh, rescued from a bunch of really dreadful uh, people who are destroying her life in front of her. She's only about 13 and they rescue her, and she's so hardened, and she's so angry, and she's so possessed of tremendous rage that she's completely shut down as a person, as often happens with abused young people, physically abused young people. And uh, the healing process in which this poor woman, young girl, is brought back to something like love and affection and openness and the possibility of standing up is so powerful and so takes so much time and is developed in the story. You, you, it, it's so real. This picture that you see of this young girl being restored to something like the possibility of hope in life, let alone belovedness that is, that is real and is, has no agenda to it and is also not sentimental, uh, that you are drawn in and you find yourself overcome with weeping because you think about yourself. Not only do you think about your daughter or your son or your brother or your sister or someone you know, but inevitably people think about themselves because there's very few people who don't feel they've been abused in some form or another by somebody at some point. And uh, here we have ourselves, and there are at least four or five vignettes in this powerful 1968 Japanese film called Redbeard, in which you find yourself, and I've never shown it to a group where this didn't happen, and I've shown it to hundreds of people. I have not shown it to any group of everyday, garden-variety, diverse American people in different sorts of groups who have not found themselves absolutely emotionally abreacted through the symbolic substitute of someone in this very powerful movie about victims and uh, forgiveness and restoration and healing and encouragement and new confidence and rebirth, whatever you want to call it. And uh, it has a cathartic quality. Let's uh, look at a couple other examples. I, uh, I know a lot of people who, uh, in sort of the community of people that love the Twilight Zone and love um, old horror movies and what we today call campy 1950s science fiction movies, and of course that's me, needless to say, but it's not ever, it's, it's, you'd be amazed what a big community of people out there uh, who are of the baby boomer generation who weren't just caught up in, uh, for us, video games were uh, the Twilight Zone, the Outer Limits, One Step Beyond, amazing stories. That's later, actually, uh, the movies of the 50s and 60s, Roger Corman, and uh, it goes on and on. But there's a particular episode. I think it's in the second season, but it may be the first of the, sorry, the original 1960 Twilight Zone uh, by um, Rod Serling uh, called Walking Distance. And in this, the uh, character, I think it's played by Gig Young, the actor, a Madison Avenue executive who's having a, another bad day on a commuter train, um, just impulsively gets in his car and drives out of New York City to the suburbs to the town he grew up in. And uh, it's actually meant to be um, Ithaca, 
uh, actually it's Binghamton, New York, where Rod Serling was a boy. And the actor gets out and he begins to walk uh, off the highway to this little town where he was a boy. And he finds that he's in his childhood. He He's in the world of his childhood, the gazebo, the bandstand in the middle of the house, the old houses, his father, his mother, uh, people he used to know, the teenagers of the town, the soda shop, et cetera, et cetera. And he comes upon himself. And I won't tell you what happens, but it's very powerful as he decides and discovers what his childhood actually functions as in his life. And he has an abreacting experience, a, a powerful experience of confronting his childhood and his actual father as an adult. But the father is the age the father was when the gig young character was a child. And it is truly very, very well done. I know many people, I mean, I can count them on my hands and toes, fingers and toes, who will say to you face to face with complete sincerity, that the movie uh, episode of Twilight Zone entitled Walking Distance uh, reduces them to tears. And I'm one of them. Now, let's just give a couple of their examples. Um, the movie from 1941 by John Ford, you know, we think of that as sort of dinosaur time. And yes, it's a long time ago, but Ford directed a movie in 1941 for which he won an Oscar <clears throat> entitled How Green Was My Valley, based upon a Richard Llewellyn popular novel about a young man who's taking leave of his childhood as he leaves uh, the mining town in South Wales where he has grown up and he's now leaving. And he reminisces about, uh, reminisces about his childhood. And How Green Was My Valley, directed by John Ford, if you want to have an experience of symbolic substitutive acting out and abreaction and catharsis, I don't know anyone, young or old, 10 years old to 90, who does not find parts and sections of How Green Was My Valley to get to the deepest place of your life within your family. The images that are really created on screen and visually composed as if from a child's point of view, the child being Roddy McDowell, who plays little Hugh, the pictures uh, that are composed from a childhood's view of what was happening are so evocative of what childhood is really like about mother and father and death and life and sickness and disease and loss and growing up and adolescence and uh, growing pains and death and uh, mourning and faith. All these things are in there that How Green Was My Valley is almost the sort of ultimate abreactive symbolic substitutionary cathartic movie of the great classic Hollywood era of the 30s and 40s. You won't go beyond that. I could give so many other examples. I could say go out and get the Criterion edition of A Canterbury Tale, the 1940s World War II uh, odd eccentric long story of village types in South Kent uh, in uh, 1944, who are all dealing with the heart of the war period, a Canterbury tale by uh, Pressburger and Emmerich Pressburger and Michael Powell. And I defy you to watch the last 30 minutes uh, without being drawn into a symbolic substitute involving loss, rebirth, hope, tragic sadness, and the possibility of heroic confidence, all within a very realistic domestic drama of village life that has a strong element of the absurd and the odd in it, which makes the deep meaning of the thing psychologically and spiritually, because it has a very strong Christian feel that particular film uh, this film gets under your skin that's what we're talking about a work of art certainly in my ministry the scriptures and I'll return to them in time 
where a text, an acting out, a story, a bit of music, a talk, usually it's something that is almost, as the uh, Romans 8 says, size too deep for words. It connects with you where your losses are. It connects to you in your strongest point of need, which, however, is usually covered over by just acres and feet and after feet of surgical scar tissue. And for you, it's going to be different. For you, what hits you is going to be different from what's hit somebody else. A movie may hit you, but a television shows somebody else. A video may hit somebody else, and a song may hit somebody else. A play or a poem may hit another guy. Another woman you know may be hit uh, by a piece of sculpture, a, a particular painting by Degas. It has any number of possibilities, but this is what these talks are about. I'm now going to embark on a series of eight podcasts, all involving literary works, which I hope will allow you to begin to see the power of the, of the unconsciously brought out part of you to when it is brought out and emotionally experienced and felt. That in itself is a very absolving thing because the judgment is down, the criticism is down, the deterrent from coming out is down. All the different voices that say you can't feel that way, you shouldn't feel that way, you've got to not ever let it be known how dreadfully checkmated you feel in that relationship or with that child or with your husband who's just impossible and doesn't have a clue what you are actually thinking. Uh, this particular fact about you that you will not let anyone know and you really don't even want to admit it to yourself. But if it came out, its hold over you would be lost. There's a fabulous article called Letting Go in the New Yorker magazine of August the 2nd of this year, 2010. Uh, what should uh, medicine do when it can't save your life by a, an Indian doctor uh, who uh, is uh, a resident and a professor at Harvard Medical School and also teaches and uh, practices at uh, uh, the Brigham uh, and Women's Hospital in Boston, Atul Gawande. And in this talk, he, among other things, he describes what happens when people confronted with cancer, terminal cancer, can actually say in a setting with safety, a good doctor, a thoughtful nurse, a helpful hospice worker, a really nice husband, a, a loving and non-possessive child can say what's going on and can hear what's going on without judgment. Without the immediate, oh, can't let that thought pass my mind. I'm not going to die. I'm going to fight this to the living end. And, of course, what happens is people get on this train of overwhelming American medical technology and end very, very badly in kind of the emergency room warehouse of the dying where they don't even know their child is there. Now, uh, Gawande says that the key amazing paradoxical thing is that when the emotion and the feeling and the truth comes out, I'm dying and I'm not going to survive. The actual fact is that they live longer. The quicker and sooner the fact is faced and it comes out, it is abreacted and felt and shared. To that extent, oddly enough, all the statistics reveal that the person has the chance of living longer. Now, that's what we're talking about. The catharsis creates life, hope, healing, because the deterrent against ever saying what you're really thinking, what you're feeling, is down. And these works of art enable that to happen, as does when it is preached in the context of the good news of God's never-failing forgiveness and mercy 
to sinners, losers, predators, culprits, and also innocent victims. The whole nine yards, when that is offered, the need to suppress is delimited and diminishes, and out comes the real thing. And that is an extraordinary fact of, uh, of human hopefulness, and it is the the hope towards which all these podcasts are intended to move. I hope you'll enjoy them. They'll start a little slow. I'll begin sort of gradually as I find my way through some uh, relatively little-known works of literature that have spoken to me and I hope will ultimately speak to you. And gradually we'll move together uh, as we go through this to the abreactive place of an emotional, um, cathartic coming to the real issue of your life and our lives together. And that will prove to be, I hope, something that you'll want to hasten and you'll want to actually enjoy. And I also want to make it fun, a little zooey, a little crazy, a little zany, a little Telstar-ish, a little bit off the wall, a little bit sci-fi, but that's great. That'll kind of blunt the edge of this. And I hope you'll have a grand old time in listening to these talks as they come one after another. And they'll start, as I said, and then gradually they will take on a, an even more direct um, arrow into our lives. Thank you very, very much, and God bless. Thank <laughs> you.